Well, I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1, Philippians chapter 1. As we look at some verses in that chapter, we want everybody to be able to follow along with a Bible. So these guys have some Bibles as they make their way to the back, get their attention. If you need a Bible, they'll get one to you. That's marked for you at Philippians 1. Philippians chapter 1. Since we last saw each other this past Lord's Day, a monumental event took place in our nation, one that has far-reaching effects and one that has left some people elated and others deeply distressed. I refer, of course, to the fact that Michigan's football team lost to Iowa last night. (laughs) Now, we have people in this room who are happy about that. Spartan fans, we know who you are. We even have some in our membership who hail from Iowa or who have family there. Lisa Steppenbacher is from Iowa. But to make matters worse, she also at one time lived in Ohio. (laughs) Wes Dale roots for Nebraska. But he has a soft spot in his heart for Iowa since he comes from that part of the country. Now, you would think that the many in our congregation, frankly too many, who are Ohio State loyalists, would be happy that Michigan lost. But because Ohio State lost a few weeks ago to Penn State, then even if the Buckeyes beat Michigan in two weeks, Penn State may still be in the driver's seat for the Big Ten Championship. Now, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, consider yourselves fortunate. (laughs) But why do I bring all of that up? Because it illustrates how our actions and feelings are influenced by what we want most. Ohio State fans were rooting for Michigan to win last night. Certainly not because they like Michigan, but because it would work best for Ohio State. I personally, as a Michigan fan, always root for Ohio State to win every game until the very final game of the season. And the final game of the season is always between Michigan and Ohio State. And I do that not because I like Ohio State, but so that when we play them, they'll be undefeated, and it makes beating them all the more satisfying. Now, some of you are Tiger baseball fans. A little over a month ago, as the regular season drew to a close, you found yourself in that week rooting for Cleveland to beat Baltimore, Kansas City to beat Toronto, so that the Tigers would get into the playoffs. As it turns out, we were eliminated in that last weekend of the season, and some went into a deep funk for several days, if not weeks. What you do and how you feel depends on what you want most. That applies to rabid sports fans, but it also, and more importantly, applies to much more significant matters. If you have a sick loved one, then you're willing to reorder your entire life around their care. And though it's wearying and perhaps costly, you're willing to do it because of your love for and your commitment to them. Your life and how you see it is centered on them and their well-being because that is what you want the most. You see everything that you're to do and all that's happening through the lens of this most important thing. What is best for your loved one? 
So whether it's your team or your parent or your child or your job or whatever the issue may be, you see everything connected to it in terms of what's best for it or what's best for them. Now, a few weeks ago, we began a series in the book of Philippians. And we've seen that the one who wrote it, Paul, was in prison in Rome when he did so. Last week, we saw that the series of events that led to his imprisonment in Rome actually started several years before. And it was all caused by his commitment to and his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw last week that he was opposed by religious leaders in Jerusalem. So much so that they plotted to have him killed. So he was arrested by the Roman official there just to save his life. Paul was actually moved out of the city of Jerusalem by night at the order of the Roman governor and to another city, Caesarea, for his ongoing safety. The political powers found nothing for which he was guilty, but they also wanted to, for political reasons, placate the religious leaders. And so they allowed Paul to be interrogated by those leaders and the governor himself questioned Paul. The result was that Paul was moved yet again to the capital of the empire, to Rome. And it's from there that he writes this letter to the church in Philippi. In the city of Philippi, there was a church that Paul had established about a dozen years earlier. And the Christians there heard about Paul's situation and they were concerned about him. They even sent money to support him while he's in Rome. It's with that background that Paul wrote the book of Philippians, which is really a letter to those concerned Christians. And what's remarkable about what he writes is that he makes clear that all that he does and all that he feels, just like that sports fanatic or that committed family member, all that he does and all that he feels is seen and experienced through what he holds to be most important. The circumstances themselves really don't matter. As long as what is most important is being achieved. And so he says to them, beginning in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. And they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He says, in effect, don't worry about me, friends, because all is good. And that's because what is most important is actually happening. The gospel is being advanced, even in these difficult circumstances. So last week we saw the first portion of of what is in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that outline in hand as yet, I encourage you to take that out. And you see at the top there, we have the first major point and the two subpoints in gray there, kind of grayed out, where we saw last week that adversity cannot stop the gospel. Past difficulty, like Paul experienced, cannot stop it. Present difficulty, like Paul is in, cannot stop it. Today, we're going to continue that passage. We're going to see that there is nothing that can stop the gospel. And if the gospel is really what's important to us, it will determine what we do and how we feel. So let's ask God to help us as we do that. 
Father, thank you in your sovereign providence for gathering us. We are here because you've allowed us to be here. We are here because you have placed in us or in someone who has influenced us a desire to be here and a desire to invite us to be here. All of this is your doing. And so we're here by your appointment. We've opened your word. We want to learn from it. Lord, we don't want to just learn. We don't want to just have knowledge and information. We want to know how this should influence us to please you. And so we ask you, Lord, to to change us. Grant us open hearts and attentive minds so that we leave here better equipped to glorify the God who made us and is remaking us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we saw last week that adversity cannot stop the gospel. And now I say in the outline, secondly, adversaries cannot stop the gospel. Adversity, difficult, adverse circumstances cannot stop it. But then people, adversaries, who either have caused those circumstances or in those adverse circumstances make them all the more difficult. Even they, those people, adversaries, cannot stop the gospel either. Now, again, verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Verse 15, it is true that some of those mentioned above, where in verse 14, it says most of the brothers and sisters, some among those most preach Christ, though out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 14 uh, speaks of most of the brothers and sisters in Rome who have now become more bold in preaching the gospel. But that group is divided into two categories. One is mentioned in verse 15, those giving the gospel to others out of goodwill. So who are they? Who are these people who have been emboldened now because of Paul's courage and how God has orchestrated his circumstances so that even though he's imprisoned, the gospel is not chained. It's still going forward, as we saw last week, despite all those circumstances. So therefore, other people who see that are now encouraged to say, I'm going to give the gospel as well and to do so out of goodwill, to do so out of proper motives. Who are those people? Well, this group of people in Rome, where Paul is, probably included people who are among the 25 who are listed by name at the end of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. You know, we have a book in your New Testament called Romans. He wrote to the church at Rome where these people are. And at the end, the, the last chapter, chapter 16, as he often does, he signs off and he mentions a number of people who send greetings or, uh, uh, or to whom he's sending greetings. And he says there in Romans 16, among these 25, let me just give you a few. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Andronicus and Junia, who have been in prison with me. Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. That's just four of the 25 that he mentions there. So among those who are preaching Christ out of goodwill and with proper motives are undoubtedly some of these people. 
The pure motive of some who preach this gospel is, according to verse 15, goodwill. And in verse 16, they do so out of love, meaning love for Paul. Yes, love for the Lord, but, but love for Paul. Because they see that Paul can no longer be involved in preaching Christ publicly because of his imprisonment, although he's able to preach it to the palace guard we saw last week. So they've stepped in, so to speak, to pick up the slack. And along with Paul himself, they understand that his imprisonment is an appointment by God, that none of this happened by happenstance, that all of this is in the hand of a sovereign God. Paul said in verse 7 that he is here for the defense of the gospel. And that anticipates a trial that is apparently coming up and probably soon. That's referred to in verses 19 and 20. And so these Christian friends of Paul, who are among the house churches in the city of Rome, see their role as filling the gap. Filling the gap with regard to evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel. And doing so for a wounded comrade in arms who's been divinely appointed to defend the gospel at the highest level of the empire. So they see this as Paul does. This is all happening by God's design. Paul's been able to give the gospel while he's there, and he's going to be able to give the gospel, they hope, as he stands before Caesar in the highest tribunal in uh, just a few weeks. This surely then reflects the heart of Paul's understanding of his ordeal as well. You know, the Romans are looking at Paul this way. They have him on trial over a matter of whether or not Christianity and the gospel that he preaches is what they called in Latin a religio licita. That is a legitimate religion. And Rome had certain kinds of legitimate religions. Judaism was one. But whether or not Christianity fell under the banner of that was was a question. Or whether or not Paul was preaching treason. Because these Christians were proclaiming a new Lord, a Lord different than than Caesar. That was Rome's point of view. This is why he's on trial. But from Paul's point of view, it's the gospel that's on trial. And his imprisonment is a divinely appointed defense of the gospel to the highest echelons of the Roman government. And he's got these comrades with him who are picking up the slack. And they are preaching Christ out of goodwill and out of love. But there's a second group mentioned in this passage. In addition to the brothers and sisters who love Paul and the gospel, and they preach it for proper motives, the passage says in verse 15 that, quote, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. So who are these who preach Christ, but they do so out of astonishing motives? Well, it's important to recognize that they are not heretics. He's saying they preach Christ. So they are not people who are preaching a false gospel. Now, how do I know that they're not preaching a a false gospel? One, he says they're preaching Christ. But also, if they were preaching a false gospel, Paul would call them out as he does other false teachers in other places in the Bible. For example, Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, the same Paul wrote, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than What you accepted, let them be under God's curse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. There are many other passages where he is willing to call out 
sometimes by name, those who are teaching an alternate and false false gospel. So one commentator says they are not preaching another Christ or another gospel. That's really no gospel at all. As for those who proclaim some gospel other than the apostolic gospel, the gospel that Paul preached, let them be anathema. We would say, may they be damned, or as Galatians 1 said, let them be under God's curse. The issues are too serious to play around with that kind of pluralism. Let's all just get along to go along. Those who preach another Jesus are false apostles, and they must be not be given the ear of the church. And so Paul is not open to commending every preacher who offers some show of piety and who preaches a, quote, Jesus. He wants to know which Jesus they preach. And we must constantly ask if the Jesus being pushed is the Mormon Jesus or the Jehovah's Witness Jesus or the naturalistic liberal Jesus or the health, wealth and prosperity Jesus. Or is it the biblical Jesus? So the fact that Paul can offer these preachers a compliment, even if it's a sort of backhanded compliment, shows that they are not heretics. They're not dangerous, false teachers. If they had been, he would have exposed them. These to whom he's making reference, are of a different sort. So who these people are now in the second category, those who are preaching Christ out of envy and out of uh, rivalry, who they are might be found in Paul's letter to the Romans as well, where he's concerned in that letter, if you've read the letter to Rome, the book of Romans in your New Testament, he's concerned about Jew and Gentile forming one people of of God, in unity, in the church. And so he says in Romans 15, for example, may God give you the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mind, one voice. In the letter to the church at Rome, Paul tried to do two things. He tried to get Jewish Christians to see how Christ brought an end to the law as a means of relating to God. But he also tried to get Gentiles to moderate their behavior toward Jewish believers on matters that really didn't didn't matter. Matters of indifference. And despite his deference to the Jews, going so far as for him to say that the gospel is, quote, for the Jew first. And his affirmations about Christ being in continuity with all things Jewish, he also says enough things to make Jewish Christians nervous about the way that Paul's expressing the gospel. And if so, then the book of Romans was effective only in part for at least one of his purposes, to try to bring that that unity. Our passage suggests that some of the Roman believers took considerable exception to Paul. And his preaching of this freedom in the gospel, and particularly freedom from from the law. Adversity, then, cannot stop the gospel, and adversaries cannot stop the gospel. And I say in your outline, their motives, the motives of these adversaries cannot stop it. Verse 15 says that the motives of some are envy and rivalry. So this group may well include Jewish Christians who are suspicious of Paul to begin with. And these and perhaps others are not only suspicious, but they're envious and they see Paul as a rival. They preach the true gospel, but sometimes they do so from mixed motives. 
They think that Paul has done damage to the Christian cause. Now hear this by getting himself arrested. Probably they magnify their own ministry, one commentator says, by putting Paul down. We can imagine their pompous reflections saying something like, you know, it's really sad that so great a man as Paul has frittered away his gospel opportunities simply because he's so inflexible. After all, I and many others managed to stay out of arrest and were at large preaching the gospel. One must assume that Paul has a a character flaw that puts him in the path of trouble. My ministry is being blessed and he's in prison. The more they speak, the more their own ways are justified and the more Paul's made to look foolish. So can't you see that happening? Why is this guy under arrest? Why did he make this foolish choice to say, I want to appeal to Caesar? We're going to be reminded of that in a moment. But how does all this affect Paul? Is he wounded by it? Sure, he has feelings, of course, like everyone else, undoubtedly. But Paul is a man of deep principle and he perceives that whether by preachers like this or by preachers who align themselves with him, the gospel is getting out. And so he says in verse 18, verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Do you see there, friends, that for Paul, everything is seen through the lens of the gospel. Everything is seen from the perspective of what is best for the gospel, what is best for Christ. Apparently, some of his critics thought Paul had let the team down and did so rather badly by allowing himself to get arrested. If he's writing this from prison in Rome as he is, He's awaiting trial before the emperor, and his situation is going to be such as it is because of his own appeal. He was the one who said, I want to go to Rome. Now, if you were with us last week, I gave you that whole tale of the several years that preceded him coming to Rome under this arrest. I just remind you of a couple of passages in the book of Acts that tell us how he wound up here. The Roman governor brought the Jewish religious leaders from Jerusalem to Caesarea to confront Paul once again. And they made their their charges. And then the governor asked Paul this, Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges? And his answer was this, the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, so no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And so the reason he's in Rome is because of his own appeal. And he had been warned, if you were with us last week, not to go to Jerusalem to begin with. Which is what started this whole train of events. And so you can easily imagine the reasoning then of Paul's critics. Depending on how this case turns out, his appeal to the emperor could bring Christianity into ill repute. This Paul is constantly rushing headlong into things where a wiser, cooler head would have been more cautious. Why did he have to go up to Jerusalem and get himself arrested anyway? He knew how much he was held in contempt there. Surely there was a better way. And so there is this distrust of Paul. They're envious because the big shot apostle has come to town and now all is focused on him. And they've been there in these house churches working and so there's, there's envy and there's, there's distrust. 
Envy is the desire, hear this, envy is the desire to deprive others of what is rightfully theirs. To wish that they did not have it or that they had it to a lesser degree. A word that's translated envy in verse 15 is used elsewhere in your New Testament. For example, in Mark chapter 15, the Bible says it was out of self-interest. Same word that we have in verse 15 for envy. That the chief priests had handed over, handed Jesus over. So envy, wishing others did not have what they have, is closely related to jealousy. Which is wishing to have what someone else possesses. From the context, it seems likely that Paul's detractors were both envious and jealous of him. They envied his giftedness. They envied his blessings, his intellect, his effectiveness in ministry. And perhaps especially his being highly respected and beloved in the church. The big shot apostle has shown up. They may have even envied his personal encounters with the resurrected and exalted Lord. And consequently, like all those motivated by envy and jealousy, they considered the apostle to be a threat to their own prominence and influence in the church. Envy. Rivalry refers to contention, especially with a spirit of, of enmity. And en- envy always leads to this, to competition, to hostility, and to conflict. But for Paul, the advance of the gospel is more important than whether or not he achieves universal respect in the church. Not only can he say, but what does it matter in verse 18? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. But he can also add at the end of verse 18, we'll see in a bit, and in this I rejoice. So Paul's example is impressive for us. It's exemplary for us. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of all of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. As Christians, friends, we are called to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. And that's what Paul did. And therefore, adversity could not stop the gospel. Adversaries could not stop it. Their motives, nor, I say in the outline, their goals. Their motives of envy and rivalry, but also their motives could not stop it. Verse 17 says that some are preaching Christ truly, but they're preaching Christ out of selfish ambition or to stir up trouble for me. That's their goal. So one commentator says selfish ambition did not originally have a negative connotation, but it merely referred to working for hire. Eventually, though, it acquired the meaning of looking out solely for one's own interest, regardless of the consequences it has for others. It was used of career professionals who ruthlessly tried to climb to the top of their fields in any way they could, and, of course, of politicians who sought office at any expense. And so there are these house church leaders there And they have this envy and rivalry for Paul. Their goal is their own ambition. And in that, they are not the kinds of leaders that exemplify Christ. Because leaders who exemplify Christ always consider, always consider what is best for the flock. It doesn't matter about their own reputation. It's what's best for the flock. 
what's best for these higher issues of the gospel and the work of God. Paul cared about the gospel first and foremost. And do you know why? Because Paul had been radically changed to his core by Jesus. His priorities, his perspective, his values, everything had been reoriented by Jesus. He speaks of that in a passage that's familiar to many of us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Now here's what that results in. You're given that in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. But in the verse just prior to that, it actually gives you the effect for which this is the cause. Verse 17 is the the cause, and that's what we would call in verse 17 regeneration. Spiritual life having been given. So no longer spiritually dead, now spiritually alive, and radically changed. But how does that radical change manifest itself? The verse just before that one says this, from now on, We regard no one from a worldly point of view. From now on, the way we see people, the way we see ourselves, all of that is now radically altered. Everything is now going to be seen through the lens of the priorities that Christ has and what's important to Christ and what exalts Christ. And as a result of that for Paul, and it should be for us, that it's always about Christ and about the gospel. And if that's the case, then we'll see our circumstances in light of the gospel. We'll see our relationships, even adversarial relationships, in light of the gospel. In the last book in the New Testament that Paul wrote, in the last letter he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy, before he was finally executed for the gospel, here's what he says. It is for the gospel that I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. And in the next verse he says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. If you're a sports fanatic, everything is about your team. And you look at the standings, you look at the games that are going on, and who you want to win or lose based upon what's best for your team. If you're a Christ fanatic, if you're a gospel fanatic, then you see everything in light of what's best for the gospel. And every person in light of what's best for them as it relates to the gospel. And friends, that applies to everything every circumstance, and every relationship because those who have been given spiritual life see through a different set of lenses now, radically changed. Now let me apply that to, I teased you at the beginning when I said we had this major thing happen this week. Michigan lost last night. But we really had this major thing happen this week, didn't we, with the election? So I want us to think for a few moments together about how we view that and whether or not we view it through the lens of the gospel. You see, friends, if you're happy about Donald Trump 
being our president. In my lifetime, there has never been a man less qualified to be the president. Certainly in terms of his character. Bill Clinton could rival him in terms of low character. But he would have few rivals would Donald Trump in terms of non-Christian character. No virtues that would point toward Christianity. And yet, and yet, you have people who are willing to make Donald Trump a Christian. James Dobson wants us all to know that Donald Trump is a, a baby Christian. Listen, friends, if Donald Trump is a Christian, Christianity means nothing. James Dobson says he knows the person who led Donald Trump to Jesus. Turns out that person is Paula White. Paula White, she was one of the prosperity gospel preachers, false teachers that I talked about in the series of Job. The thrice married Many times bankrupt, false teacher, Paula White. Her latest marriage is to a former band member of the rock band Journey. She's living out every 70s and 80s teenager's girl's dream. As a Christian, preacher of the gospel, but a false gospel. I was forwarded an email this week from a, a Christian elderly lady who thinks that Donald Trump is the savior of America. Not somebody from this church. And this lady wrote, God is so good to his children the day after the election. I thank him for being merciful to us and giving America one more chance. Tears of joy. I, I had tears too. <laughs> President-elect Trump needs our unending prayers. That's true. And then she says, as a new Christian, and for wisdom in his God-appointed position, as a new Christian. Some of you have thought, because some of you have asked me, did, I've heard, I've read that, you know, uh, that Donald Trump came to the Lord recently. Even that meeting with Paula White took place years ago. And whatever happened there years ago didn't bear any fruit, as far as I can tell, in Donald's life. And Christianity bears fruit now. You don't have to be a Christian to be the president. You don't, and, and you don't have to be a good Christian to be the president. So not being a Christian does not disqualify him from being the president. But how you view him and how you talk about him, hear this, friends, like everything else, needs to be related to the priority of the gospel as because you're a Christian. And how does that relate? Here's how. Here's how. Hear this. Many people who hear Christians talk about support for Donald Trump believe that that means you support what kind of person he is. Be very, very careful that you separate yourself from the person Donald Trump. Because Christians cannot, must not support the kinds of vile things that this man says and does. We must pray for him in his position and respect him in his position. 
but not in his person. And just to prove to you that this is the way unbelievers think about this, this is what one unbeliever said. He said, you know, our children would be grounded for years if they acted and said the things that have been said in that campaign by Donald Trump. And then this unbeliever said this, I look at the evangelicals and I wonder, those values don't mean anything to them? Do you see, this man hears that 90% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump and he immediately says, well, you guys don't care about what you preach. That you're willing to get giddy about that guy? The coach of the Detroit Pistons, Stan Van Gundy, went on a six-minute rant this week after the election. He was supposed to be doing his press conference about the Pistons. He didn't talk about the Pistons at all. He talked about the election. And the reason is, he said, because as they were on the team bus or plane, he saw all of his guys, they were down. He thought it's because they had been blown out by 32 points a couple days earlier. But he asked one of the guys, and and the guy said, no, it's about this election. Now, most of them, of course, are African-American. Stan Van Gundy went on this six-minute rant, and here's just a piece of it, though, because he mentions evangelical Christians. You read how he was embraced by conservative Christians, evangelical Christians. I'm not a religious guy, but what the heck Bible are you reading? Cleaning it up. What Bible are you reading? I'm dead serious. What Bible are you reading? You're supposed to be different. There are a lot of different groups that we can be upset at, but you're Christians. You're supposed to be, at least you pride yourself on being the moral compass of our society. And you said, yeah, the guy can talk like that about women. I'm fine with that. He can disparage every ethnic group, and I'm fine with that. Do you see that's how unbelievers are seeing this? That Christians think, hey, all that stuff we talk about on Sundays, baby, when it comes to having power in Washington... None of that stuff matters. long as our guy wins. Be aware of that, friends. The gospel matters. The reputation of Christ matters. And it matters more than who's in power in Washington. Now, the truth of the matter is, many evangelicals, many Christians, didn't know what to do in this election. About six weeks ago, I did a lesson during our second hour, giving a perspective on that. Those of you that were here for that may remember that I said this is the most difficult election that I have ever had because both of these are horrible candidates. And so some of us just had to hold our nose and vote for the lesser of two evils. Some didn't vote at all. Some voted for a third-party candidate. We just didn't know what to do. So having voted for Trump does not mean that you support who Donald Trump is. But I am telling you, friends, Christians, the gospel matters more than politics. And therefore, when you talk about politics, make sure you distance yourself from what the man stands for. So I was asked on Wednesday night in our class here, so what about that election? And the best I can sum it up is, I loathe, I said this, I loathe the fact that this man is president. But I love the fact that she's not. You know, that's just the dilemma. 
Why? Because who's she going to appoint to the Supreme Court? I know who she's going to appoint to the Supreme Court. That's a bad thing. At least the Supreme Court has a, a chance now. I don't know what Donald Trump will do. So you could do what some of us had to do, kind of close your eyes, you know, hit that straight party ticket or just, you know, hold your nose. But distance yourself, Christian, from the values of this man. When you talk about Trump, you should be troubled by what he says and what he's done. And you should be conscious at all times of how your embrace of someone with his character represents Jesus. And in a context of evangelism, how it is we come off to unbelievers. Paul, who's written all this stuff I've been talking about today, to the Romans and to the Philippians. He also wrote to the Colossians. And he said this. Pray that we may proclaim the gospel clearly as we should. And then he added this. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Be wise in the way you talk about any alignment that you might be perceived to have with Donald Trump. All right. Adversity cannot stop the gospel. Adversaries cannot stop the gospel. And then lastly, no thing and no one can kill our joy. No thing and no one can kill our joy. Again, verse 18, what does it all matter? The important thing. Here's the important thing. Here's the priority thing. In politics, in your personal life, and in everything else, the important thing is that Christ is preached. And because of that, I will have joy. Because of that, I will rejoice. In the midst of my difficult circumstances and being chained to a Roman guard, and all of the things that preceded it, Come what may, I will have joy. I will rejoice because Christ is preached. Why? Because the gospel is the most important thing. So I told you last week, as I've said a number of times over the year, joys is, over the years, joy is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life and in that of others to advance His cause. And that in turn That commitment to the cause of Christ gives you not only joy, it gives you purpose. Purpose that produces this joy. That everything I'm going through is not random. Nothing I'm going through is random. And everything is contributing to the cause of the gospel advancing. It also produces not only joy, but, but ethics. Purpose produces ethics. That is, I'm going to live a certain way. Because I'm going to live this way in light of now this newfound purpose that I have. Years ago, we had a man who was a member here. Many of you know him, Bob Pittman. Bob has moved several years ago to Florida, but Bob's testimony was that he came to Christ as an adult. And he lived most of his adult, he lived all of his adult life prior to coming to Christ as a, what he called a fall down drunk. And he said, I was convinced that you could not have fun apart from alcohol. And then I came to church fellowships, and there's no alcohol. And these people are having a blast. So it it changed the way he he lived. But he also told me this. When I was unsaved, when I was a non-Christian, I just assumed in business that everybody lies. But then coming to Christ, that changed everything. 
So with the gospel being our priority, with Christ being our priority, it radically reorders everything. It gives us purpose that produces this joy and produces these changed ethics in our lives. But all of this is only true if our purpose is the gospel. That's what it was for Paul, and that's what it's to be for us. So in your take-home truth, I say, we can always rejoice. We can always have joy because God's work is always advancing. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us purpose. That every moment of my life, every moment of the lives of your children, there is eternal purpose to it. That nothing is random. That every day we awake, we can say to ourselves, right now, today counts forever. Thank you, Lord for calling us out of the world into yourself and radically then changing us from the inside out and reorienting then our priorities so that sports isn't the most important thing to us anymore. So that politics is not the most important thing to us anymore. That there is nothing that is as important as Jesus and his gospel. Because of that, Lord, help us as your people to live that out then in the way we talk, in the way we act, in the way we prioritize our lives. May it bring glory to our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. May we be ever mindful that we are his ambassadors. and we represent him in the way we talk and act and with those we, with whom we align ourselves. As a result, Lord, may we be wise in the way we act toward unbelievers, outsiders. And may you be pleased then to use our lives for people who are suspicious of us now, very suspicious of Christians. What do they really believe? Does this stuff they preach really matter? Has it really changed them? Help us, Lord, to live in a way that shows that it does and therefore have credibility in our witness. And then when we boldly give the gospel, may you use that to bring some to yourself. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.